0: Welcome to Mysterious Universe, Season 6, Episode 4. Coming up on this show, real cowboys and aliens from 1865, giants in the Americas, and an Indian vampire. I'm Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is Aaron Wright... After a tumultuous 24 hours here in Sydney, lots of crazy stuff happening.
1: Yeah, and immediately I'm thinking, is it a full moon? And I had a look, and it isn't. It's just been very bizarre. Like, I pulled up to park this morning, and there's cops everywhere and forensics vans. And we don't know what's happened,
0: but well, that's going on. that's here, yeah. There's a woman wrapped in a blanket with no clothes on, jumping into a taxi cab, and yeah, police everywhere. You thought, well, how many forensics vans did you see? There was see? two. And that's just down the road. That's just but, down the road, yeah. The headlines around the world for Sydney... Uh, last night was the bomb scare. This poor, poor girl in Mossman. just Well, she's not poor. I mean, she lives in Mossman. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very rich suburb. A few minutes from us uh, apparently had a collar bomb attached to her and a ransom note attached to that. So thank thank God that's all finished. And And there's no explosives
1: in it. But it was so technically advanced, apparently, according to news reports, that the bomb squad and everyone else that was called in to investigate this, were really they ended up having to x-ray it to see what the components were because they were really concerned about how intricate it was. So that's amazing. I mean, nothing like that has ever happened in Australia before. It's happened in the States. I think there was a case in the States where someone had a bomb strapped to their neck and they were sent into a bank Mm. to hijack the bank or hold up the bank. That's right. And I think, I don't know if it exploded. It ended up exploding because
0: he didn't know that it was was rigged to have a failsafe. Uh, And that's what they were worried about with hers. That's why it took so long they had to evacuate the entire street because this poor 18-year-old girl was sitting there and she couldn't move, she couldn't leave the room because this device was attached to her somehow. And we still don't know the details. We don't know whether... Uh, there really was some kind of ransom demanded or whether she knew the person that did it. So I'm presuming someone broke into her home and forcibly attached this to her. Well,
1: that's what the story is. That's the last thing I read before I went to bed last night was that someone, a singular person broke into the house, attached this intricate device to her neck, said that I have a listening device in the house. You can tell the police or you can contact the police. You can tell them this and you can tell them that. Don't tell them this. Don't tell them that. Otherwise I'll detonate the bomb because I can
0: hear you. And that's where we're at. We don't know anything else. I mean, she's fine now. Well, thankfully, yeah, she's fine. The family's fine. And uh, the police are on the case trying to track it down. And then it, it was just strange to see all those forensic vans and police everywhere this morning, mm. right outside our office. Mm. And we've blocked out a lot of the noise. Thank thank God for that. <laughs> we ended up buying two judo yoga mats. mats, so yoga mats, and just slapping them on our walls over the window. We were complaining a few episodes back that we had construction noise. So. It actually has improved the acoustics in here slightly, so it was a win-win for us. I
1: love the idea that your friend had. A friend of yours mentioned to throw some sort of uh, native Australian artefact in there, (laughs) so thereby it becomes, the renovations become a what, an archaeological dig.
0: Yeah, the Australian Antiquities Organisation has to close it down and investigate and just throw a few arrowheads in there. Yeah, I'll be R and and I'll be able to cause problems. But no, it didn't work so well. But let's get into the news. We've got some great news coming up. Well, some of the stories coming up are actually quite morbid on this episode. It seems to be article after article that was reporting on something dark for this episode. So it's got a bit of a theme, but we wanted to kick off with some UFO news. And thanks to everyone who sent this our way. This was a BBC Radio 5 sports reporter who had a unidentified flying object sighting early yesterday morning. He was driving to work when he saw this. Yeah. This occurred over a field in Hertfordshire. And according to him, there was another eyewitness that, that saw the object, but they're still trying to find this person and get in touch with them. Uh, but let's take a listen to what he had to say to Radio 5.
2: I'm flying out of Stansted Airport this mm-hmm. morning, and I, and I live in the Midlands, so I was driving east, um, cross-country, and I was probably, I think it's about 15, 20 miles from Stansted Airport. I was out in the countryside, 4.15 in the morning, and I saw this big, bright light in the sky and what looked like an aircraft coming towards, or sort of descending towards the road, which I was driving, Um, and as it got closer, it then banked to the left, what was to my right, and then as it banked to the left and went across um, the countryside, I could see underneath, and it wasn't an aeroplane, and it wasn't a helicopter, and it was much bigger um, than a helicopter, probably the size of an aircraft, but it was certainly of a kind of, I I dread saying this, disc-shaped, because it had several (laughs) lights flashing all around it, and underneath, there were two, at least two, large panel lights, soft white lights underneath, and then it just sat or just circled a certain area above the field. Um, And then eventually I dropped down and lost sight of it.
0: It's interesting. If you keep listening to that interview, and we'll link to this in the show notes at mysteriousuniverse.org, the people he's talking to, the interviewers on that radio program, don't know what to ask him, and their reaction is just to laugh laugh it off right and there's no there's no no one asks well can you describe it in more detail you know did you hear anything did you smell anything there's no there's no real anything vibrations anything like that there's no real probing into what it was it was just kind of a a chuckle and a ha ha and you know i hate to say the word ufo but it is interesting that he does say it was a circular object Mm. it was a saucer shaped object
1: but i find it interesting that this thing is coming from stansted airport So, was it, you know, could it be some type of aircraft? He said it was near Stansted Airport. Later on in
0: the interview, he said he was about 17 miles from it. Oh, okay then. Well, that makes it a little bit different. Yeah, if if he hadn't said it was circular shaped, essentially hovering in the field, you would probably think maybe a conventional aircraft or a helicopter he's misidentified. But he seems to indicate that he was quite close to it there. So, we're really hoping to hear from that other witness who was on the scene, so then we can get a corroborating report. Now, after that breaking news, we wanted to kick off into some science news, and I think this headline is quite uh, monumental, considering the NASA shuttle was recently grounded indefinitely. It had its last flight recently. Now, there's a post on newscientist.com reporting that this year, we'll see in December this year, the very first private spacecraft ever to dock with the International Space Station. Isn't this
1: fantastic? This is so exciting that we're, when the shuttle came to an end it really was an end of an era and it was almost sad to see. It was sad. Yeah, it was very sad to see this happen but the future for space travel is just so bright I think. It really is because private companies have a reason to go up there. They have a reason to put in you know, excellent technology and, and a lot of money into this and a lot of investment to really make the final frontier part of humanity. And it's saying here that NASA and SpaceX, and SpaceX is this private company, have technically agreed on the California-based firm's first date with the International Space Station. Now, the SpaceX Dragon capsule will be launched aboard a Falcon 9 rocket on the 30th of November, and then will rendezvous and dock with the ISS on the 7th of December, nearly one year after its first test flight.
0: It's pretty incredible that they're going to attempt this that quickly after its first test flight, really.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But I guess the thing is the technology is there. I mean, we've got, what, 30, 40, 50 years of space travel behind us. Surely it's there. But I started thinking about this from a commercial point of view and a, a technical point of view. And I thought, well, if all these companies start establishing space travel... They're going to have to have some type of, I don't know, standard for docking. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. if you build craft of different shapes and different sizes, how are they going to dock and, and how's this all going to work? It's like what happened in Australia where, like, in Australia, we don't have trains that can run across states. I mean, there are, but none of our train networks are the same gauge. Yeah. So, you can't just get trains to go. It's just really bizarre. So, I wonder if the same thing happen with the space program. Yeah, we
0: need a standard docking size so yeah. we can push ahead the space industry. But I think I- that's probably low down on the list of things you've got to think about when you're developing know a- <laughs> <laughs> I don't Some know. Kind of space travel.
1: Well, it's the International Space Station, so you've got international, you've got these different companies, different countries all working on this one project. You would hope that they'd have a standard. But what I really like about this, though, Ben, is that a spokesperson from SpaceX has said that uh, astronauts flying on the Dragon will be considerably safer than those on the shuttle. So already we're a step forward. You would hope to think so, considering how old those
0: shuttles are. Yeah, well, how old are the shuttles? we like 30, 40 like, yeah, years 30 old. 30 years old Yeah. Or so, so... Any new technology should have some more advanced safety technology built in. Still on science, we head to Darren Brown's blog at darrenbrown.co.uk. He picked up another one from New Scientist. This was on a man with roughly 50 to 75% of his brain missing, but he still lives a normal life. He's a civil servant in the UK. Oh, there you go. He's a civil servant. That explains (laughs) everything. Married with kids, lives a normal life, and they've got the scans, the photos of the scans of his brain here. There's a big hole in this the centre of it. Huge hole in his head. There's there's nothing there. He has like well, not the outer in his, layers of yeah. the brain, and that's it. Isn't this amazing? I mean, this guy is living a completely normal life. How is he doing this? This just defies belief. Yeah, they say scans of the 44-year-old's brain showed that a huge fluid-filled chamber called a ventricle took up most of the room in his skull living little more than a thin sheet of actual brain tissue. And again, you've got to take a look at these images to really appreciate how much of a hole is in there. So hang on. He had hydrocephalus, which
1: is water on the brain. It literally is water on the brain. And when he was an infant, he had a shunt inserted to drain this That no, was when he was 14. No, no, no. That shunt was removed when he was 14. Oh, all right. So when the shunt was removed, they decided to check the condition using this CT scanning technology. But then a different type of technology came in, which is MRI later on. And this is where they found out, well, hang on, removing the shunt wasn't such a good idea because it was still pooling water, which was obviously squeezing his brain and it obviously destroying grain matter. It's incredible how much the brain
0: has compensated for that lack of material there the poor
1: guy though he's only got an intelligence of about 75 which is well below the average which is 100 but he's not considered to be
0: mentally retarded or disabled he's functioning he's fine he's fine he's a civil he's married with two children the guy's fine and that big question over how much importance the brain has on our thinking and who we really are leads into the next article again from new scientists this was reported by Ferris Jarborough. This is about the founder of Cryonics who died on the 23rd of July, Robert Ettinger. And he actually, of course... Decided to take the leap himself and was completely frozen by his company, the Cryonics Institute. Can i going to stop you there, though. I have to say, though, it's so funny because it
1: just did the second paragraph of this article. He's talking the the writers talking about how um, he's being frozen alongside his mother. I mean, he was 92 years old, so he had a good life or a long life, anyway. But he's being frozen alongside his mother and Rhea, his first wife. But also his second wife, May. So imagine if they all get woken up at the same time. It's like,
0: oh. Who's this bitch? (laughs) (laughs) Well, they've actually got 100 people uh, currently frozen in these giant bottles of liquid nitrogen. And most other companies actually charge $200,000, but they take different approaches. So these guys freeze the entire body, minimum price tag, $28,000. And you know how they pay for that. A lot of people take out life insurance right. and then have the life insurance pay for that. Right. But other organizations, even though they charge more, their goal is neuro-preservation. So that's the idea that instead of freezing the whole bodies, you essentially just need the brain, the head, so that in the future, you may be able to take that uh, the structure of the brain, the neurons, and then somehow- Transcribe it into some type of- yeah. animatronic
1: cyborg or a computer and you upload yourself Uploaded into it but a, then again uh, yeah. but hang on if the brain tissue is dead and you're able to co- you're only copying it then you're not actually reanimating that and if you to believe in the concept of a soul then are you is the, what happens to the soul is the soul imagine if you're dead is the soul trapped inside this body and it can't leave while you're frozen
0: it's it's interesting because there are some facets of nature that lead me to think there may be some substance to this kind of technology that it isn't a fool's errand we might actually be able to achieve something out of this for example there's certain amphibians who are able to lower their body temperature and go into a state of extreme hibernation we but had reptiles that, bears they all do that as well well we had that uh, japanese climber on mount fuji remember last year he got lost for It was was days and days and days and they just thought there's no way he could survive and then they eventually recovered him and it was found that he went into some hyper uh, hibernation state and his body temperature, I do recall that. But he, yeah, he almost went into this trance-like state and was able to come out of it. His body was able to recover. So maybe there's an element of nature that allows living organisms to do this? So many bees died in my childhood, unfortunately,
1: because I was told that bees can be frozen and reanimated. Oh God. So I feel really bad because I found out that's not true. It's not true. Right. Based uh, on how, my many, own, how many bees did it take before you figured that out a as lot. a young child? And I got stung a lot too. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting because as you say, Ben, I mean, there's a French biologist by the name of Jean Rostand who um, actually froze and defrosted frog sperm without serious damage. And this is what enthused Edinger to go and produce
0: these cryogenics. And well, it was also science fiction. Yeah, yeah well, He says right, that yeah. he, he was inspired by this tale of a professor who has his corpse launched into space and then millions of years later, a race of robotic men resuscitate him by transplanting his brain into a mechanical body. Yeah, that'll happen. That's a, that's a Neil Jones uh, story he was he was inspired by. But in nature, we have these examples, as I said, of, of hibernation and reanimation, but it's it's not... It's not thousands of years. It's not hundreds of years. It's like a couple of days or weeks at the most. Yeah. Um, and for a really complex organism like a human being. Well, we haven't
1: been able to reanimate mammoths that have been found. Like mammoths have been found frozen in ice and they haven't been able to, or we scientists, humanity, haven't been able to reanimate those. So how's it going to happen here? I, I personally don't see this happening for a very, very long time, if at all. I mean, it might happen, but I mean, also I think we did something about cryopreservation on a show quite a while back about- yeah you've actually got to be frozen to death rather than dying from that because you need to slow the body down very yeah. slowly.
0: and Isn't the de- there's like an instant decay of the,
1: yeah, the yeah neurons? Yeah, the second you die, the reason why it's really hard, like for example, um, some people try to commit murder by using uh, potassium, by injecting potassium into people. And don't try this, kids, because you will get caught these days. But um, previously, if you What you're do you a- mean don't try this, kids? like People are going to listen to that and go, oh- like, that's a way to kill somebody. We don't know who. who we're, do
0: you think listens to this show? Like, we
1: don't know who we're broadcasting to. So I'm just saying. I, I'm sure it'd be like 0.001 percent. But anyway, <laughs> what it is though is that um, when you die, your cells burst and release potassium. But see, potassium interacts with your heart, and so if you inject someone with the potassium, it causes their heart electricity to, or you know, the electrical movements in their heart to overload, and that's what right. causes them to have a heart attack. So I mean, it's this is the same thing. If you're when you die, your body releases potassium, your pancreas instantly breaks down. There's a whole heap of things that go wrong. Whereas if you're frozen before, then then you avoid those problems. But that means you have to be frozen to death. So is that then murder or is it you know when we've, when we've when yeah
0: when we've discussed this euthanasia. on the show before as well? I've I've said what what happens to the actual soul and the consciousness during this hibernation period during the freezing because from near death experiences and out of body experiences, I think it's been demonstrated. If you take those accounts on board, that there is existence, there is consciousness, there is thinking, and you know mm, your mind mm. still works outside of the body, completely disassociated and separated from the brain. So, what happens when your body's completely cryogenically frozen? But also,
1: what if you just get to decide to have neuro preservation, so you just have your head or your brain frozen? But what about things like we've spoken about before with like organ memory? Yeah, cellular memory as well. Yeah, exactly. So but I think it's, little, it's
0: too much. A lot of questions that need to be answered. Although I don't think it's in the extreme of this is just, you know, a fool's errand. This is a pointless science. So I think it, it still should be pursued.
1: Now, the subject of our next article, Ben, may very well have actually ended up being frozen to death because he was put into a morgue freezer. Now, that sounds kind of, that sounds normal if they're dead, but he wasn't. This South African man woke up in a freezer, in a morgue freezer, and rather than the staff helping him, They ran away thinking it was a ghost. Yeah, he was reanimated. (laughs) Isn't this crazy? It says a 50-year-old South African man thought to be dead woke up in a chilly morgue on Sunday and shouted to be let out, scaring off the two attendants who thought he was a ghost. A health spokesman said his family thought he died. The family called a private undertaker who took what they thought was a dead body to the morgue, but the man woke up inside the morgue at Sunday and screamed. I mean, first of all, why would you call a private undertaker? Why would you not call a doctor or an ambulance?
0: Maybe they just thought, what's the point? He's
1: gone. He's dead. But you know what? He was frozen. Well, he wasn't frozen, but he was subjected and exposed to extreme cold for almost 24 hours. And I like at the very bottom of the article that actually says doctors, emergency workers and the police are the only people who have the right to examine patients and determine if they are dead or not. I would just say doctors. Thanks for that.
0: There seems to be a lot of these waking up from the dead reports. In Africa. This week, yeah. yeah. And especially this week. The next one's from Zimbabwe. A sixth form pupil from Mount Pleasant High School in Harare, Zimbabwe, he was certified dead at a private hospital after collapsing at her home on Friday, but miraculously gained consciousness on Saturday after spending a night in the mortuary. What is going on here? The school authorities had earlier sent the girl home so she could get treatment after she'd complained of a severe headache. She reportedly collapsed while at home, resulting in her being rushed to a medical centre in the Avenues. There's a quote from the teacher at the school who said, It appears she had not died, but had fallen into a coma and regained consciousness while in the mortuary, perhaps because of the cold. Fortunately, an attendant heard her coughing and assisted her. And I was wondering how the students would react because of the folklore and the, you know the, course, the beliefs yeah. that exist in African nations regarding witchcraft and things like that. And when she returned to school, uh, initially, of course, pupils were terrified of her. I thought she was a ghost. Her peers were terrified, yeah. But eventually they relaxed. The school authorities assured them that this was a normal mishap.
1: But It says here that she was also called to the headmaster's office where she was counselled and congratulated on her escape. Well, why wouldn't you be? Congratulations for not being frozen to death.
0: (laughs) That's ridiculous. (laughs) And we move from Africa to Asia now. The Times of India has an article on a woman that has defied death and come back to life to nail her killer husband when Khan Chan Vinsuda, 34, returned to her home in Vatva, her husband Ramesh could not believe his eyes. He reacted with fright as if he was face to face with a ghost. This is horrible. Do you know what he did?
1: he they have been married for quite a long time, but it was an arranged marriage, and he went out with his wife one day. Obviously, he just had enough. They've got children too. Yeah, right, right, right. So he took her out and said, no, let's it, go. F-
0: it was like a romantic day out, yeah, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like this romantic day, and they were, we're going to go for a little walk. He pushed her off a bridge into a river. And she can't swim. And she can't swim. So he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, she's dead. He's so like, I better go and tell the authorities my wife fell in the river. Yeah, and that's what he did. He returned home and said, oh, my wife fell in the river. It's terrible. But now she's dead. And, of course, fortunately, some locals pulled her out of the river
0: and showed back up yeah. and had him arrested. Good for her. I know. That's an amazing story, right? What a way to return and get justice. And still in the times of India, this story is morbid, but this is – Absolutely horrible what this man did. A man actually drank his wife a man actually drank his wife's blood for three years in Madhya Pradesh. A twenty-two-year-old woman in the Damo district has told the police that her husband drank her blood for the past three years. Deepa Ahira said he used to take a syringe and draw blood from my arms. He would then empty it into a glass and drink it. For three years he did this on a regular basis threatening me of dire consequences if I revealed it to anyone.
1: What a freak. What is he doing this for? I don't understand. I mean, is it a control thing? It, I mean, I know that people, there's, we've reported it on before, about people drinking other people's blood because it gives them what well, they believe. It gives them life and vitality and, and youthfulness. But
0: this is just bizarre. He actually started doing this just months after they were married, and you know, like it said, he would he would draw blood from her veins and then drink it from a, a glass. But the reason she finally protested, because if he if she complained, he would beat her. And the reason she's protesting now is because she gave birth to her son seven months ago, and of course. Taking this blood, she's feeling drained all the time, nauseated. And the saddest part of this story is that when they went to the authorities, her father took her to the authorities to tell them what was happening. Well, they, they had to said, do it in a different district. Yeah, they said, sorry, we can't help you. This is the wrong district. You have to go to somewhere else. And even when she went to them, she had trouble getting justice. And finally, when the village people found out what was happening to her, that's when they all came together and said, This has to stop. I mean,
1: clearly this guy has some serious psychiatric issues. And it's a very it's a huge shame that the police weren't listening, isn't it? Just awful. I don't understand what's behind that. And it's just, I don't know, it adds to our our morbid tales because there's one more here, which is also about blood sucking. Although this isn't as morbid, this is just unusual. This is more along the lines of a chupacabra,
0: isn't it? Well, this could actually be the chupacabra appearing once again in Russia. A blood sucking creature is preying upon goats near Novosibirsk. As rational explanations run thin on the ground, the spectre of the so-called chupacabra raises its demon head. This is from the Moscow News, and they're reporting that horrified farmers and smallholders are confronted by the drained corpses of their livestock in the morning, bloodless and bearing puncture marks to the neck, but otherwise largely intact. Now, they say that the local law enforcement are reluctant to record these apparent attacks because they're awaiting for official recertification. I don't what know if that's that a mean? translation issue. I don't know what, what that – why would they need to be recertified to investigate these these claims, there's quotes here of uh, locals complaining to uh, one of the local papers. They said, "If this creature is not stopped, it could make its way to Novosibirsk. Our only police force are doing Jack Diddley about it. I didn't know they said Jack Diddley. In That's Russia. definitely a translation. Surely <laughs> they say Jack Diddley. The authorities say there are no chupacabras. Come if you will, journalists. Have a look at what is happening." And then there's a tale from Natalia, a local animal keeper who shares her experiences in the region. She told the newspaper, it all happened one night of June the 10th. I was sleeping. My daughter was sitting at the computer looking at the internet. She says at about 2am she heard a sound in the yard, some whining. The dog, which guards the farm, screamed for 15 minutes and then quietened down. The dog's behaviour drew the attention of my daughter, but she didn't think it was important. She thought that if a stranger had come to the house, then the dog would bark. And here it was more like a whining. Now, she says in the morning, it became clear why the dog had been howling. She said, I got up and went to the barn to milk the goats. I looked and saw right on the doorstep, a goat with its neck thrown back unnaturally. On the neck, there was something like a bite mark. The belly was torn and there was huge claw marks. As soon as I saw it, I started screaming. I ran to the house to see if the children were all right. She says, whatever killed the goats never tried to eat the flesh. It just drank its victim's blood. And it turned out that nearby villages had also been afflicted. They said cattle was affected. One resident said, it's come from the devil. I've seen it. My brother, even when he lived near St. Petersburg seven years ago, accidentally photographed a chupacabra. He took the usual family picture and then saw the demonic face through the kitchen window. They said it was grey-red. It was such an unpleasant face, like a bat with fangs. They said, my brother showed me this photograph, but upon the advice of the family, they burnt it. Damn it. That's a little bit convenient Damn just it. there. Why do
1: things always get burnt? I mean, I find this really fascinating because you think, well, if this was a satanic cult or someone messing around, it wouldn't be this clean. And this sounds like, as it's saying here, I mean, the two puncture marks in the neck and then completely drained and then, but no attack to the flesh. It's just very it's strange that
0: it's from Russia. Yeah. You know, the Super reports... Originated, originated thing, they originated in South America. We have them in, in North America as well. But to have them, I mean, occasionally you have things from Europe, but to have them in Russia as well, thats I mean, that's that's really strange. The thing is there's this claw marks and the throat's ripped open. So you, you kind of got to assume that it, it it is some kind of native wildlife yeah. or an escaped exotic pet that's doing the killing. I mean, if, if you say there's no blood, maybe do they lick up the blood? Exactly. Do they stay there and lick it up? But the thing is, I don't
1: like the last explanation here at the bottom of this. It's saying here that the chupacabra is a recent legend which we know, and it originated in the 1990s in America. It's supposedly a heavy creature the size of a small bear with a row of spines reaching from the neck to the base of the tail. But we've heard many different descriptions of Chupacabra. But finally, it says here that some seem to think that there's a more prosaic explanation. And Discovery News reported in 2010 that the Chupacabra might actually be wild dogs infected with a deadly form of the mange. That's so dumb. Isn't that ridiculous? Because if, it, if dogs had the mange, which is horrible, but if a dog was infected with the mange and ran around biting things, it's not going to be a clean couple of puncture marks and blood completely drained.
0: It's going to be an absolute mess. There's going to be fur everywhere. Yeah. It's going to be horrible. It would be like me finding uh, a couple of mangy dogs and going, I've found a yaoi. Yeah, right? Yeah. And then the press picks it up and goes, oh, this guy claims it's a yaoi. And then someone else finds a mangy dog and says, oh, that's a Yowie. Mm. And then all of a sudden, people associate Yowies with mangy, mangy dogs. dogs, which is what's happened to the Chupacabra, especially in North America. As soon as you see a mangy dying dog, it's immediately a Chupacabra. Chupacabra. Yeah. Which, of course, is not the original description from the sightings in South America no, not in at the all. 90s. I mean, it could be the case of mass hysteria spreading, spreading through the villages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that definitely could be occurring. Uh, or there could be something unknown going on. It is strange that the dog was whining and unwilling to bark. And I wonder if there's been strange sightings of lights in the sky that often accompany these... Mutilated animals. We're gonna take a break here. The rest of the show is far less morbid than oh. what you just heard, but we've got some great stuff coming up after the break. Stay with us. Welcome back, and we
1: head over now to UFO Chronicles, which you can find at the com. And this one really caught our eye. I'm not gonna read the title because I think again, Ben, this gives it away. This is from the 19th of the 10th in 1865, and it was originally from the Missouri Democrat newspaper. And it writes that Mr. James Lumley, an old Rocky Mountain trapper who has been stopping at the Everett House for several days, makes a most remarkable statement to us and one which, if authenticated, will produce the greatest excitement in the scientific world. Mr. Lumley states that about the middle of last September, he was engaged in trapping in the mountains about 75 or 100 miles above the Great Falls of Upper Missouri and in the neighborhood of what is known as Cadot Pass. Just after sunset one evening, he beheld a bright, luminous body in the heavens, which moved with great rapidity and in an easterly direction. It was plainly visible for at least five seconds when it suddenly separated into particles, resembling, as Mr. Lumley describes it, the bursting of a sky rocket in the air. A few minutes later, he heard a heavy explosion which jarred the earth very perceptibly, and this was shortly after followed by a rushing sound like a tornado sweeping through the forest. A strong wind sprang up around the same time, but suddenly subsided. The air was also filled with a peculiar odour of a sulphurous character. Now, Ben, what does this sound like to you? It sounds like a meteor has crashed, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly right. Nothing too strange about this. It's just from 1865. Hmm, wait for it. These incidents would have made a slight impression on the mind of Mr Lumley, but for the fact, on the ensuing day... He discovered, at the distance of about two and a half miles from his camping place, that as far as he could see in either direction, a path had been cut through the forest several rods wide, giant trees uprooted or broken off near the ground, the tops of the hills shaved off, and the earth ploughed up in many places. Great and widespread havoc was everywhere visible. Following up this track of desolation, he soon ascertained the cause in the shape of an immense stone driven into the side of the mountain. An examination of this stone or so much of it that was visible, showed that it was divided into compartments, that in various places it was carved with curious hieroglyphics. More than this, Mr Lumley also discovered fragments of a substance resembling glass, and here and there dark stains, as though caused by a liquid. He is confident that the hieroglyphics are the work of human hands, and that the stone itself, although but a fragment of an immense body, must have been used for some purpose by animated beings." Strange as this story appears, Mr. Lumley relates it with so much sincerity that we are forced to accept that it is true.
0: I wonder if that was a craft. Yeah, exactly. But if it was a craft, would he still describe it as a stone? Well, maybe. Maybe. If, it,
1: if it's some type of futuristic or highly advanced metal or alloy, possibly. Maybe that's the only way that because i mean this is 1860s yeah and he's finding some kind of glass and possible fuel on the ground as well yeah and he's saying oh well it's it's a stone but hang on it's compartmentalized and it's got hieroglyphics on it why would he think that's human i mean i understand animated beings i get that but my question is where is this thing now
0: taken away by the secret government of 1865
1: yeah I'm, i'm sure that there was a secret government back then is this just viral marketing for cowboys and aliens I don't know. Which it kinda, looks awesome, by the way.
0: Well, it kind of has that
1: feel, but the actual article itself, they do have a copy of it here. So it actually was, unless they've falsely generated this, it does look genuine. Yeah, if this is genuine, that is a really cool story. But maybe the whole, I mean, I'm just brainstorming here, but maybe the whole idea of black ops technology or a breakaway civilization has actually started long before, well beyond ah. what we think. Like it started back in the 1800s. Just so, imagine how advanced
0: it would be now. So there's acquired extraterrestrial technology in the 1800s. Yeah. And they've been building since then. Possibly. And that could explain all the late 1800s airships. Airships, yeah. Reverse engineered technology. Yeah. I like the way you think, my friend. See, I've been doing this too long. Genius. Now, considering we had just recently viewed the Westall 66 documentary, the famous case from Melbourne, Australia, where a very large group of school children witnessed multiple disc-shaped flying objects in the sky that actually landed just outside the school grounds. Various students had uh, interactions with these craft. And were in the Westall documentary, which is a fantastic documentary, we recommend you uh, check it out, The they were actually interviewed uh, They're in their, what, late 40s, early 50s Mm, now, they were were interviewed and uh, they recalled their experiences and that made it really compelling. I think hearing directly from eyewitnesses is always really compelling when you have these kind of accounts and that made me think back to a famous one and we've spoken about this on the show before but it has been a while since we've looked at it, and that of course is the Ariel School in Zimbabwe, the close encounter there. That occurred on September the 16th, 1994. Teachers and school officials at the Ariel School in Rura, Zimbabwe were amazed when the school students, aged approximately 5 to 12 years old, reported that a flying object had landed on the school grounds, Now, we've got a bit of audio coming up from uh, a documentary that filmmakers were working on with, of course, John Mack, who investigated this case and interviewed these students. And in that documentary, they actually had audio from the interviews back in 1994. And the quality's okay, but you can tell it's like old tape and the audio isn't great. But I was was thinking, wouldn't it be excellent if they went back and interviewed them now? They're probably approaching their 20s now, those kids. If not older. Yeah, surely they can still remember this uh, fantastic account perhaps we can go back and interview them now and that would become you know even more compelling than the case already is. But then, of course, it is Zimbabwe. So to go over the, the story again, we got this from ufoevidence.org. They've got a great write-up on it. Uh, the teachers at the school were in a meeting. So the 62 children were basically unsupervised while in the schoolyard on morning recess. The only available adult seems to have been one of the mothers who was operating the school tuck shop which is like a snack bar. We call it a tuck it's shop canteen. as well. Yeah. According to some sources, UFOs had been seen in the skies over Zimbabwe for two days before the incident occurred. Now, Rua is about 20 kilometres from Harare, the capital of Zimbabwe, and Ariel School is a private elementary school with students of mixed ethnic heritage. The children said that they had first seen three objects in the sky. These objects would disappear and then reappear in a different location. The objects moved closer and closer to the ground and finally landed in a brushy area adjacent to the schoolyard. This area had not been fully cleared yet and was off limits to the students. The object landed or hovered just above the ground in an area about 100 metres from the students. The children said that a small man, about one metre in height, appeared on top of the object. The little man, who was described as having a scrawny neck, long black hair and huge eyes, walked a short way across the ground towards the students. When he noticed the children, he vanished and then reappeared at the back of the object. The object then took off and vanished. The smaller children were very frightened and cried for help. They believed that the little man was a demon who would eat them. Black African children have heard legends of tokoloshs and demons who eat children. The children ran to the tuck shop operator, but she did not want to leave the shop unattended and so did not go. She obviously didn't believe them. The late Cynthia Hind, known as Africa's foremost UFO investigator, investigated the case the next day. When she was first contacted, she asked the headmaster of the school, Colin Mackey, to have the children draw pictures of what they had seen. When she arrived at the school, he had about 35 drawings for her, and the drawings were all very similar objects. The headmaster affirmed that he believed that the students were telling the truth, and one little girl told Cynthia Hind that, "'I swear by every hair on my head and the whole Bible,' that I'm telling the truth. Now, Dr. John Mack, the adduction researcher and his associate went to Rua and spent two days interviewing and counseling 12 of the children and their parents. Now let's take a listen to some of the audio from those interviews. You heard a noise in the air? Yes. What was it like? Like a roar or a buzz or a hum? Or what kind of a noise?
3: It was like someone was blowing a flute. It was scary myself.
4: It was scary because you saw something yourself?
3: Yes. Mm-hmm. I saw a little object hovering. It was quite big, actually, and then there was little ones all around it. We saw something silver, and then we quickly ran to the, lo- to the logs and we saw a silver silver thing, and we saw a man standing next to it.
4: Uh, what did it feel like when he was looking at you?
3: I felt scared.
4: It, it felt scary? What was scary about it?
3: Well, I felt scared because I've never seen such a person like that before.
4: What was the feeling when you looked at the eyes?
3: Um, it was scary.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: The eyes looked evil. Evil? It looked evil because it was just staring at me.
4: With what? Staring at you as if what? As if to do what?
3: As if it
4: wanted to come and take us. As if it wanted to come and take you. That was the feeling you got? That it wanted you to go with it? Did you feel like you wanted to go with it?
0: No. So this is so compelling. I mean, you have 62 children there, all with very much the same story. They're quite articulate children as well, aren't they? Yeah, there's no deviation in the descriptions and the drawings, as we said earlier, were all very, very similar. But you did note, and you said to me before, that the questions seemed to be slightly leading. Well, I feel like sometimes you you, you need, need to, to children. well, not leading. You need to kind of get more information because the answers are just very short. So further on in the video, we actually hear from the teachers, and the idea that this was some kind of uh, orchestrated fantasy by the children doesn't seem to be a logical explanation according to them. Okay, we were in a staff meeting and we just heard them screaming, screaming, ah! And they were, yeah, you know, and the child can't make that up. <coughs> I was. Would-
4: very skeptical in the beginning as well. Um, I believed that they'd seen something, but I wasn't prepared to accept that it was anything supernatural or anything like that. But I think the consistency of, of what's been going on indicates that it was more than I was prepared to
2: admit in the beginning.
3: What I thought was maybe the war's going to end, maybe they're telling us the rule's going to end
4: um, well, Why do you think they might want us to be scared?. <clears throat>
3: Because, um, maybe because we we don't look after the planet and the area properly.
4: Is this an idea that uh, you have had before that we don't look after the planet properly in the air? Or did this idea come to you when you had this experience?
3: When I had this experience.
4: Mm-hmm. And how did that idea come to you from this? This is a little hard, but try try to be with me here, okay? When you, how did this idea come to you when you had this experience? I
3: just felt all horrible inside.
4: You felt horrible. At what point did you feel that? When you saw the craft, or at, when you got home at night, or when I
3: got home
4: you had that horrible feeling when you got home and say more about that horrible feeling, Lisa, what was it like?
3: It was like in the world all the trees will just go down and and there will be no air and people will be dying. Mm -hmm.
4: And those thoughts came to you, had you had those thoughts before this experience? No. No. And How did those thoughts come to you? Did they come to you from the craft or from...?
3: From the man.
4: The man. And the man, did the man say those things to you? Uh, How did he get that across to you?
3: Well, he never said anything. It's just that the face is the eyes.
1: What, What was the sense you got from those eyes?
3: He was
0: interested. Great stuff there. That's that is great um, audio. But
1: the eyes. Like we've heard of telepathic transfer with eyes before, and I think it was the it was the Huggins abductions, or I can't recall. Yeah. But we did that before and mind melding. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And that, that's they're words that generally children don't use. Children don't talk about the world running out of air, and then I mean that's not well, something that's part of the vernacular that children use. Well, again, Mac had to
0: probe quite deeply to get her to reveal. For example, what does the end of the world mean? And she said, like, the air's gone and everyone's dying. But normally someone, a child, would
1: say fire and, you know, disaster. They wouldn't say running out of air. I mean,
0: maybe they would. I don't know. But it it, it strikes me as very unusual. It's bizarre that she got that thought after she made contact with the eyes, though. And in the drawings, and we'll link to this video in the show notes at mysteriousuniverse.org, in the drawings one of the boys is doing there, I found it intriguing that he... Obviously, it's a typical grey-shaped with the big almond-shaped eyes, but he said there's white pupils... Yeah, isn't that weird? ...in there as well. Now, this is the thing. I, I searched for this documentary because I know it was being worked on in 2009 and the filmmaker was still asking for funding. Every search I've done hasn't found any new information past like late 2009. So I don't know if the funding dried up and this never happened because when you do a search, all, all you can really find is the original interview recordings and interview tape from the mid 90s. I wonder if this is still in the works. I wonder if it just dried up because I'd love to see like a full length in a feature documentary at, at film festivals and possibly in theatres uh, about this case because it is it is a really compelling case. So you think they've just haven't been able to get the information together or the money
1: together and they've just released what they've got just to get it out there? It's
0: probably a combination of money and the fact, again, that it's it's Zimbabwe, so you know, yeah, obviously right. the country has a lot of problems and tracking down the original students might be difficult in that situation. Yeah, because there was a major strife
1: in Zimbabwe when Mugabe took over.
0: Oh, yeah, horrible horrible situation. But if anyone knows any details on that, Pending documentary Please let us know Because I'd like to Follow it up We're going to take A quick break there We've got lots more Coming up on this show Don't go away
5: Hi um, This is Liz In Seattle And I have a couple of uh, Sleep paralysis stories To share with you guys When I was about 15 um, I woke up one morning And I was laying in bed Paralyzed But So this my bed And then At the foot of my bed Across from it was a desk with a chair and a mirror. And I opened my eyes, and I realize I can't move, but I can move my eyes. And I look, and in the empty chair at my desk, there was this man sitting there, and he was in an orange prison jumpsuit. He had a shaved head, and there was a barcode tattooed on his head. And as I'm sitting there, he turns in the chair, and he looks at me, and he grins, and he has this, the the most horrible teeth, like the most horrible redneck British teeth you've ever seen, and he smiles at me, and he gets up, and he starts walking towards me, and all of a sudden, I snapped out of it, and I was just
4: screaming.
5: I've never been so frightened in my life. Um, And it's just interesting, because I keep hearing all these sleep paralysis stories of these shadow, I've never seen a shadow person. I see, like, real people. The other sleep paralysis story is one that was fairly recently. Um, I was lying in bed, and I guess I had forgotten to set my alarm, and I had to get up. And right about the time that I was supposed to get up, I opened my eyes, and there was a troll in a business suit. And he's hovering over me, and he says, Hey, and I, I wasn't scared. I was more like annoyed, and I, I just kind of was like, and I went back to sleep. And then he, again, he went, Hey. And I opened my eyes, and there he was again. And I closed my eyes again, and the third time he went, hey! And then I finally I just woke up. I was like, okay, fine. And I woke up and looked at my alarm, and it was 10 minutes after the alarm was supposed to go off. So I guess the troll in the business suit doesn't want me to be late, because he sounds like he's very professional. I love MU. I'm a plus member. Best podcast.
1: On the web. Love you guys. Thanks for the call, Liz. so cool. I don't need to get an alarm clock like that. Although I assume that uh, Liz is very much like me. Like, the house could be on fire, but you're not going to wake me up in the morning. The troll in the business suit doesn't want to <laughs> be hey, late for off. work He's <laughs> a very
0: professional guy. Isn't that great? Thank you so much for calling in with that, Liz. It makes me think of what that represents, though. I wonder, because the, the first description of the, the person, and she said there, Liz said that she doesn't see shadow people. She sees you know, actual people. Which makes me think, could that be spirits floating around? But in the case of the troll in the business suit, is that representing something like an aspect of her? You mean it's like a part of her that's making sure that she gets up and it's something that's... But she said she wasn't scared by it, so... Remember I told you that story of, of someone who woke up and saw something similar and they realised it, it was a manifestation of their desires and lust that oh, manifested yeah. as this strange rat-like creature? mm Like they had passed some test in their dream and then when they woke up there was this creature running around and eventually disappeared and they realised that was a manifestation of their – a part of themselves – so, maybe in Liz's case, the troll in the business suit, and I'm just going out on a limb here, maybe that's a representation of something to do with her. Like maybe. Maybe she had a big meeting to go to or something. Well, yeah. maybe it's something related to business in her life or something along those lines. Or maybe it was just a troll in a business suit. I'm going to go with the troll in the business suit. All right, that's easier. <laughs> <laughs> now, I
1: got an email here from Heidi, and this is great because she said that she has an experience to share about cattle mutilations. And she says, My family owns some property on a lake just outside of Edmonton in Alberta. And one afternoon when I was 11, my family and my second cousin's family, there was 12 of us all together, went for a walk down the road to a neighbouring field. When we entered the field, we all saw something that still confuses me. There were two fully grown cows lying parallel to each other, facing opposite directions, with both their legs pointed towards the other cow. The cow on the left had all of its skin peeled off, but everything else was untouched. The cow on the right, however, had its skin still perfectly clinging to its bones." but there was a hole at the base of the neck and in its rear, and everything had been hollowed out perfectly. I remember thinking that I could crawl through it if I wanted to. A couple of feet away, there was a dead calf lying there with a perfect incision in its belly, and its stomach, I assumed, had gently been placed in front of it. The odd thing was that there was no scent, no blood. My father told us that it was coyotes. Later in my life, my parents told me that it was cult-related activities. Thanks for that email, Heidi. That just sounds like a classic. Well, yeah, probably none of the above for yeah. coyotes or cult activity. Yeah, like this sounds like an extraterrestrial cattle mutilation or God knows if it's extraterrestrial, whatever it is, but that's definitely not
0: a cult or a coyote. Yeah, you do have the classic the classic signs there. we got a number of great emails this week. And of course, thank you to everyone who does get in touch with us through our feedback at mysterious org address. Of course, we don't have time to get back to everyone. Um, we We do do read them all though. And really appreciate them. We say this every now and then, and our email box is just full all the time. We get so much email from you guys and we love reading all of it. But yeah, we apologize. We can't get back to everyone that sends us an email. But there are some great ones that do, do make it on the show. One of those emails was one from Jason. He said, hey, guys, I was listening to episode 603 and decided to finally contribute my piece to the mystery. He said, when I was 10 years old, I was introduced to the paranormal world by an unexpected visit from an American army soldier. He stepped out of our guest bedroom at the top of the stairs and looked down at me. He was there long enough for me to get a good look at him. I noticed his rank was three up, two down. I was just waiting for him to say something. With no sound, he walked back into the bedroom and I continued on playing games with my sister. I thought nothing of it at the time. He was a man, probably a guest. My new stepfather and his friends were still strangers to me, so I didn't think anything of another person new in the house. My stepfather was a retired military psychiatrist, so he had many colleagues visit. An hour or so later, our mother called us to dinner. As my sister and I approached the table, we noticed only four sets of silverware. She asked where dad's friend was going to eat. Mum quickly asked who my sister was talking about. She looked at me, then turned to mum and said, the man upstairs in the guest bedroom. Mum bolted up the stairs with the cordless phone in her hand, calling the police. I didn't understand what the excitement was all about. I heard mum opening and slamming doors shut. She came down and stared straight at me, grabbing me and pulling me into the living room. She asked me who I saw. I told her the description and I could see she suddenly became sick. Her face changed like her mind had wrapped around something she couldn't completely grasp. She was truly afraid. She denied any experience that happened after that. As I said, my stepdad was a shrink and he questioned me thoroughly about this. Mum wanted to make sure we weren't losing our minds. I was excused from school due to illness and all the while my mum was sending me to different doctors to be tested in retrospect, I understand and thank her for that. Now back to my stepdad, JC, he was very interested in the experiences that my sister and I were having. After some time, he let me know of his childhood experiences. He remembered how terrified he was and how helpless he felt. So I think that this commonality made us better friends. We discussed possibilities like ghosts, UFOs and the general paranormal. His favourite was Bigfoot He had seen a ghost in his room and a UFO in 1941 on his father's North Texas farm. Due to his experiences, he never wore the sceptical hat. After that first experience, strange things happening became the norm. My most fascinating experience unfolded like this. I come downstairs for breakfast. I was the first one there, so mum and I started talking, and the subject changed to this strange dream I had the previous night. It started with me on the beach, waves crashing, serene and relaxed. I'm in a cave. Three stereotypical witches, pointed at hat, crooked nose, are standing around a cauldron and there was screaming behind me. These witches looked like they wanted to harm me, so I defended myself. Well, I attacked and the first witch I kicked back into a pit in the middle of the cave. The second I punched once and she flew into the cauldron and the last I threw in the fire. My mum and I were both shocked at how violent the dream was. Normally, my dreams are of me exploring and going to new places, but this time I was brutal and savage. A few moments later, my sister comes down the stairs and was dressed and happy. She comes up to me and hugs me for a long time. My mum gets the, oh, how cute face, and then asked what that was for. My sister said, mum, you wouldn't believe what he did. He saved me from the three witches. She continued by recounting the dream from her perspective. I listened in shock as to what happened. My mum looked at me and mouthed, do not say a word. I figured that my sister was so scared that she either pulled me into her dream or while in a dream, I sensed her fear or the need for protection. Jason then goes on to talk about how all these experiences happened in this house he grew up in and he believes that maybe the house itself has something to do with these strange experiences.
1: Yeah, thanks for that email, Jason. You know, I was thinking about this as you were reading that, and I wonder if it is, you know, we come back to this idea of this collective consciousness, that perhaps he is protective of his sister at that time, and so... He knew that she was having a bad dream. So for some reason, his ethereal body or I know I'm going there, but you know somehow he had an out-of-body experience and stepped into his sister's dream or was somehow connected to it. Yeah, well, there's
0: some kind of connection between family members mm. and especially abilities seem to appear in children of that, that age group as well, yeah. from five to, to nine. I just loved it because you know
1: normally we don't go into dream sort of stuff, but I just love the fact that he talks about this dream with his mother and then his sister comes down and says exactly the same dream from her yeah. perspective. It's amazing. Hey
5: guys, it's Lindsay from Seattle. And I just wanted to call and say your podcast is the best podcast in this entire universe that is oh so mysterious. I really appreciate your skepticism mixed with open-mindedness. It's really refreshing. And you're also pretty funny, too. Which brings me to the point after gushing that I'm totally in love with you guys. Will you marry me, please? Okay, bye. Have a good
0: one. Best phone call ever. Yeah, thanks for that call. That's great. Although I will be
1: in Vegas next month, so perhaps you know we can go out and get oh, drunk yeah. and get married by an Elvis impersonator or something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you're taking that proposal seriously? No, unfortunately I'm not. I'm happy being a oh. bachelor. Crushing hearts. Oh, well, you know. Crushing hearts on Mysterious Universe. No, Australians to do high maintenance to get married to years. so don't worry about it.
0: I like the interesting phone calls, but I like the calls from hot American girls even more. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. <laughs> Especially <laughs> when they just praise us and then ask to marry
1: us. <laughs> The best calls. Thank you so much for everyone who's emailed in and called in this week. It's great. We really love it when people give us feedback. And before we go, I just wanted to quickly mention this one article. This one is from news.9msn.com.au. And I just noticed it actually as we were going through the show. It's a Swedish man has been arrested after trying to split atoms in his kitchen. I saw that. He was trying to build a nuclear reactor. In his kitchen. But they said he would have succeeded unless police stopped him. He had radium, americum and uranium in his apartment and... And he was actually, he melted down something on his stove. He actually had a nuclear meltdown on his stove. And so he thought, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't have this. And so he called up the authorities and they set the police around. As you do. But where did he get it in the first place? Exactly.
0: Where did he get all the materials? Although maybe he just acquired, maybe they're materials that you can just acquire. Through just through eBay. not Regular means. Yeah, of course. No. You can't. You can't, you can't you buy uranium through eBay? I certainly hope not. I
1: don't know, but I certainly hope not. But anyway, that brings us to the end of the show for this free section. We do have plenty more coming up, including cryptids and giants in our plus section of the show. If you want to join plus, all you have to do is go to mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. It's $9 a month. You get an extension of your regular weekly show and you get an exclusive episode every weekend. Check that out at mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus.
0: And don't forget, head to mysteriousuniverse.org. Look for season six, episode four you'll find links to everything we've spoken about and in, the music in today's show and of course yeah the music section is at the end of the show notes there i just realized that we haven't been saying that recently because we've been getting more
1: emails from people saying where's that song from
0: yeah you know if- that song that goes no 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 what what is
1: that so anything that we play in the show will be in the show notes just to have a look it will be there so for our regular members we'll catch you next week for our plus members stick around there's more for you coming up after the break
3: it's not
0: Welcome back, Plus members, for our first story for this extension, we head to the always entertaining Jason Offit. He is back to his best. He's been having some great articles on From the Shadows recently, and of course, was it last week we did the Ouija board story? We did, yes, and he's
1: got more tales of a Ouija board instance here. These are really uncomfortable, but as I've always said, don't mess with a Ouija board, and this is proof
0: why. Well, this actually came from a reader who contacted Jason after he did last week's Story on the Ouija board. And Jason writes Kindred walked into his older sister's house one weekend night in January of 1979, his senior year in high school, to find his sister, her boyfriend, and a few cousins around the kitchen table, some sitting, others standing. He had no idea what the night would bring. He said all cousins were female in their early and late teens. No real significance, although now I wonder if an overwhelming female presence influenced events that followed. Kindred's cousin Diane waved him toward the table. Check this out, she said. As Kindred stepped to the table, he saw something that sent fear right through him. He said, I was taken a little aback. Coming from a Christian background, we were all told not to mess with Ouija boards. But they were, and Kindred joined the game. Are you dead or alive? Someone asked, the plastic triangular planchette skittering across the board. The group asked the question again and again as the planchette indicated a different spirit had joined the conversation. Kindred said it would go to each letter, stop at each letter, and spell out dead or alive. Cousin accused Cousin of moving the planchette, but everyone denied it. The group would soon find no one in the room, no one living, had moved the triangle. Kindred said a whimsical remark, angered whatever was there, and one leg of the widget caught on the end of the board. Everyone lifted their fingers off it, and it quickly moved across the tabletop. Although frightened, no one wanted to stop the session. Kindred said that curiosity had gotten the best of us all that night. Simple yes or no questions made way for more complex queries like, what are you? He said we would get answers back such as rabbits, cows, snakes and people we knew that said they were asleep but communicating with us. Then, whatever communicated with them began to get too close. One upsetting
1: moment when going through the list of questions, it said it was by the cliff, which was a landmark on the property, Kindred said then by our corrals, then crossing the creek. The procession was towards us, and fast. Finally, it said that it was outside, in the yard, wanting to come in. As the group hovered over the board, wondering what to do, someone stood, peeled back the kitchen curtains, and looked outside. A dog stood in the yard, staring at the house. It was Kindred's parents' dog, Choco, and would have had to cross these landmarks to reach the house. That was pretty freaky, Kindred said. Fueled by attention, imagination and adrenaline, the group continued to work the board. Then something happened. Kindred said these routine sessions of questions and answers were suddenly broken. The board randomly spelled out purple, which confused everyone in the room. But when the board spelled out Newtown ND and Samantha, Kindred realized the board targeted him. An ex-girlfriend named Samantha, he'd always associated with the color purple, lived in Newtown ND. It was all very startling to me. It was as if there was a universal conscience or entity somehow focused on me and brought up knowledge only I knew, and these were things that were not on my mind at all at the time. The most disturbing event, while the group sat in the kitchen watching the plastic planchette skitter from letter to letter by its own power, didn't occur in that house. While we used the board, my cousin's mother kept getting phone calls from a little boy claiming he was her abandoned son. The voice told her he was calling from a payphone from a nearby lander, and wanting her to pick him up at the 7-Eleven there. She would know if she had a baby and had abandoned it anywhere. As soon as she hung up the telephone, the little boy would call back. Then the prank turned into horror. Kindred said the most horrifying thing for her was the last of these several calls, when the little boy's voice morphed into that of a man's voice as he was talking to her. It was very, very creepy. Although the telephone calls stopped after that, and the group pulled up the board and everyone went home for the night, the Ouija board experience has stayed with Kindred for 32 years. I do not encourage anyone to experiment with an Ouija board. That night was the only and last night any of us ever engaged in one. Now that's one of the most unusual Ouija board stories that I've heard because to me, it sounds like the mother who had nothing to do with the practice of the Ouija board is being affected by them playing with it. I haven't heard it of Ouija boards affecting people outside of the group that would be playing with it.
0: Can you come and
1: pick me up? Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Pick That's me up. The fact that it knew locations where they were. I mean, honestly, if it's saying that it's getting closer and they look out and there's a dog there, and clearly this dog did have to travel across these locations, I mean, what if the dog's possessed? I mean, I think it's time to then shut up shop and go home.
0: The moral of the story is don't, don't mess, mess with, the with the Ouija boards. But unless, if you do, email us. Yeah, unless you want to make a great story for Mysterious Universe. In that case, do mess with Ouija boards and, and record then it us. and email it. And call in, etc., etc. Now, next, we head to another favourite of ours at Inexplicata, the Journal of Hispanic Ufology. There's a great post from Scott Corrales talking about giants in Americas. And he writes that Alexander Mackenzie and Simon Fraser, the first explorers to venture into the pathless northwestern areas of Canada, were cautioned by the native tribes he encountered that hideous, destructive creatures prowled the region. He says the tall peaks of British Columbia were home to. Eight-foot-tall Sasquatches, the broad river to which Mackenzie would give his name was the lair of the Brush Man of La Show, a yellow-eyed monster who, like Beowulf's Grendel, feasted on human flesh, showing preference for tender helpings of women and children. Oh, but of course. The Rocky Barons held even greater terrors, such as the dreaded Weetigo, a fanged giant. Even scarier were the towering headhunters of the Nahini Valley and the invisible creatures said to haunt the shores of the Great Slave Lake. Now, Scott does a great job in this article of covering a wide spectrum of tales and legends and folklore of giants through the Americas. He even makes it to Antarctica and Greenland. So, we want to give a shout out to this article and say, go and check it out in full because we're just going to pick some pieces out of here. We've actually covered the ones from Greenland before. And I think we've done the Weetigo ones before as well. Yes, there's a few- Places that that overlap. Don't you just love it, though, how these
1: folk tales always seem to be, they want to go after women and children? You know, it's like they're the
0: weakest, so that's what they go for. Well, they're the most delicious. Of course. Really. Uh, author, <laughs> if you're a cryptid. He writes, author George Eberhand wrote about the traditions held by the Inuits of the Northwestern territories regarding non-human presences in the area. Now, while these traditions are invariably folkloric in nature- and they're filled with the ancestral spirits and religious motifs. Scott writes that there is the possibility that they describe factual events. He says that the Inuit on Sledge Island, for example, have a tradition which describes the arrival of a fireball which appeared out of nowhere to the distress of the tribe's people, but even more distressing was the appearance in the wake of the phenomenon of an entity resembling a human skeleton which appeared in the village and began slaying its inhabitants. Native Greenlanders also have unusual beliefs, such as the existence of a subterranean interdimensional realm that is the home to the Izarak, a dwarfish race that appears and disappears into the ground. Now, after that, he goes on to write about the southwestern corner of Canada's uh, endless northwest territories, pegged between the Selwyn and Mackenzie Mountains, and that's where the Nahanni Valley lies, named after the river that courses through it. And he says the valley acquired the reputation of being an evil place, or at least an enchanted one, at the dawn of the 20th century. Driven by the Klondike gold fever at the end of the 19th century, prospectors pushed deeper into Canada's pathless wilderness in the hopes of finding the soft yellow metal that would make them rich. Some of these enterprising but poorly equipped miners were never heard from again, fueling all manner of wild rumours and speculation that the Nahanni's deep gullies and valleys housed a warm weather paradise zealously guarded by hostile natives and presided over by a white queen in the best tradition of H. Ryder Haggard and Edgar Rice Burroughs. Prehistoric monsters and haunting winds completed the ensemble, substantiated by the fact that regional native art often included drawings of mastodons and similar beasts. And there were, as he said, disappearances from prospectors in the valley there was one in 1898. Jack Stanier and Joe Baird, two prospectors who had broken away from the pack of Klondike hopefuls, managed to secure the services of a native guide who led them through the maze of minor canyons around Virginia Falls directly to the headwaters of the South Nahanni. They would have entered the enigmatic valley, but their guide experienced a nightmare and balked at leading the two men any further. In 1905, William and Frank McLeod entered the valley and, and came back with a bottle filled with gold nuggets they returned for more this time accompanied by an engineer and were never heard from again until a rescue mission in 1908 found their headless skeletons tied to trees from that moment on the Nahani acquired its popular moniker headless valley the dark
1: legend grew when another disappearance took place in 1910 Martin Jorgensen, a Norwegian gold seeker, built a cabin on the banks of the Nahini as a base from which to launch his activities. Although a letter indicated that his quest had been successful, Jorgensen would not live to enjoy his newfound wealth. His bones were found two score yards away from the ruins of his cabin, with the curious detail that a loaded and cocked gun had also been found, as though the prospector had decided to make a stand against unknown quantities. His skull, however, was never accounted for.
0: In the pages of The Mysterious North in 1956, journalist Pierre Burton visited the Nahani at the request of the Vancouver Sun and managed to interview Willie McLeod, a nephew of the long-vanished prospector in 1947. The second MacLeod stated that Indians no longer lived in the valley and went at great lengths to avoid it, entering it only in groups. Another prospector, Bill King, informed Burton that he had been to the valley in 1934 when an Indian guide known as Big Charlie offered to act as his guide. But the guide was invaded by a sudden trepidation that caused him to abruptly terminate the journey. He said we had done maybe 170 miles when he turned back. Frightened, I guess, said King, though I don't know what of. I had to go back with him, of course. Is this sudden trepidation or a vision of imminent danger similar to the one picked up by Stania and Baird's guide 35 years earlier? Perhaps it would be more important to ask if there are really tribes of unspeakably awful beheaders lurking in this natural wonderland. In cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman's The Field Guide to Bigfoot, Yeti and Other Mystery Primates Worldwide, he actually offers a 1964 case in which trapper John Baptist from the Fort Liard settlement encountered an unclothed hominid described as strong looking and sporting a long dark beard. Sightings of a similar being were reported at Fort Simpson on the Mackenzie River months later. Known as Nuckluck or Bushman, these primitive creatures may be responsible for the Nahani's sinister reputation. You know, that
1: sounds to me very much like what I was told about tales as a child of bunyips. They behead you? Well, they Tie have... your skeleton to a tree? No, 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 no. The last part there, just the, the long beard, unclothed hominid with the long beard that was known as Bushman.
0: Yeah, well, it matches the tale of of woodmen and bushmen from around the world. I mean, there's tales like that from from the UK as well and in Europe of the, yeah, the bushman (laughs) that that runs naked through the forest.
1: But this is interesting because, I mean, this could be interpreted as being a Bigfoot as well when you're talking about a hominid and, you know, perhaps they are aggressive. I mean, we just, we don't know. And I don't think we're
0: going to know for a long time. Further on, Scott heads to South America where he writes about the gigantes of the Southlands. And he writes, trudging through the fields and scrub vegetation towards the pyramid complex of Teotihuacan is the closest that the casual tourist can come to being on another planet. Even on a fine sunny day, there is a certain alienness to the landscape that makes the enormous pyramids of the sun and moon seem a trifle frightening. Oh, this is going to be terrible. Can I say this? What? Open plane, therefore aliens. (laughs) Yeah, right. Pyramids, therefore Aliens. aliens. The Aztecs treated this site with awe and reverence, and we've spoken about this before. We did that uh, little snippet of audio because this was named, what's the Aztec term for it? It It's like the Temple of the Gods. Yes, yeah, something like that. Something similar, the City of the Gods it was called, because they actually believed that this temple was constructed by the gods. It wasn't constructed by man. And superstition, well, this supposed superstition, kept the Aztecs from ever living within that construction. They never actually settled in it. And when the conquering Spaniards first reached the location, Scott writes, dense layers of alluvial mud covered it. Historians tell us that the monumental complex was built around 200 AD and was sacked by the Toltecs in 856 AD. But there is evidence that the Mexican pyramids are actually far older than the ultra-conservative figures given by scholars. According to British archaeologist H.S. Bellamy, the excavations at Teotihuacan require the removal of layers of earth Measuring up to one metre in thickness, he himself reckons the pyramid to have been built around 5000 BC. So this goes back
1: to the idea that I've commonly heard, and we've discussed it in the show previously, I believe, but the pyramids were actually built by a race of entities or creatures, who knows, or humans, that existed here long before conventional archaeology or history says.
0: Well, usually the case is, I mean, that's where you get the ancient aliens theory from. Yeah, right. And you know, people claim that, well, we can't understand why that was built. So therefore ancient aliens. It's it's older than we think, therefore it must have been aliens. But if you look, and Scott points this out, if you actually look at the South American legends, uh, it talks about presence of deities, but also giants, and giants that appear in almost every single cultural tradition in the world. He has a quote from Fernando de Alba, a chronicler from the Colonial Times In his writings, he said that there were giants in New Spain and Mexico. Furthermore, their bones may be found everywhere. And ancient Toltec historians have dubbed them the Quinametsen, against whom they fought many wars and had much strife in this land called New Spain. And Scott writes that it may well be that the bones of these giants corresponded to those of mastodons or other earlier animals. But Mm. the description of these clearly non-human creatures abound in ancient records. Frey Andres de Elmos, quoting from native sources, stresses the divine origin of these giants. It says the four gods created the giants, who were very large men, endowed with enough strength to uproot trees with their hands. The Indians have outstanding recollections of them and call them the and Huetlacame, which is to say large and deformed men. The Colonial Chronicler adds the curious detail that the giants were afraid of falling down since they found it impossible to stand up again. That's kind of a significant handicap. Yeah, I'd say so. you <laughs> fall over, you're stuck there. <laughs> you're done. You're done, fool. Sorry to hear that. You've got to die now. Tradition has it that it was these giants who were put to work at building Teotihuacan for unknown purposes. The ancient codexes go as far as to mention a king among the giants who built great things and was taken for a god. Another chronicle describes how Jelhua, another giant, built an artificial column in the shape of a pyramid. Curiously enough, the Codex Vaticanus 3738 depicts one of these giants. In the mid-1930s, General Langoire French researcher, looked into the evidence of a strange unknown civilization predating the arrival of the Olmecs and the Toltecs on the Mesoamerican scene. This enigmatic culture was one of formidable mathematicians and engineers who may have been imitating older monuments still. The memory of their existence and the magnitude of their undertakings may have led successive cultures to regard them as giants who were swept away by floods, earthquakes and other disasters. Langois believed that certain Egyptian pyramids were copies of the earlier Mexican ones. Ah,
1: now that's interesting there as well. That, you know, how are these cultures interacting with each other if they were... and. If the pyramids were built by giants, well, then how were the other pyramids that were copies built? Were there another species of giants? I mean, it's just such a, a rabbit hole of, of curiosity to go down.
0: When, when you talk about pyramids, I mean, you're not just talking about South America or... Or Egypt and Africa. No, they've like the Bosnian ones, well, the ones maybe. that are apparent,
1: maybe, you know, and then like the ones that are alleged to be in China. So there are a collection of them. And I like it here at the end of the article because he says the presence of giants in contemporary ufology, particularly in Latin American cases, cannot be overlooked in this regard. Creatures measuring up to 12 feet in height have been reported in Brazilian and Argentinian encounters. And he says, could these be the otherworldly kinsmen of the giants who built these mighty Mexican monuments?
0: Yeah, it's true. You do have contactee reports that describe really, really tall entities. But again, I feel like that, that paragraph at the end leans towards you know, the therefore aliens conclusion. Yeah, like, right. why does everything have to be alien? Yeah, I I, well,
1: how do we not know that it's entities that have been here or a civilization
0: that's been here long before we were here? And I mean long before. Yeah, because if you think about the cycle and build up and destruction of, of civilizations, I mean, who knows what what existed before? I mean, the remnants of it may well be completely, completely gone, you know, with just a few scatterings of it left, but all we have is... Are those scatterings and the oral traditions have existed in native cultures? Well, I mean, we have possible
1: proof of ancient nuclear weapons with all of that frozen glass, all that fused sand, which turned into glass in the, uh, was it in the United Arab Emirates or somewhere in the Middle East that that's shown up. How do we know that we haven't blown ourselves away before or civilizations haven't blown themselves away? There'd be nothing left.
0: Well, he's got an example of a prehistoric toolkit that was found in Agadir, Morocco, and... Apparently, this 300,000 year old set of tools was designed to be used by someone with hands corresponding to a human being that was 16 feet tall. Really? I mean, that's the only way you could wield these tools if you had giant hands. And he adds that other Cyclopean works found in other parts of the globe have also been the handiwork of these giants. The problem is that these tales of, you know, giant skeletons being dug up and discovered and you know, there's also a conspiracy that says it's been covered up. A lot of them are—they're just really old, dusty tales. Like yeah. they're just stuff from, you know, the late 1800s or earlier. And yeah, it's just a bit convenient that that there hasn't been anything new discovered. But why cover it up? Or is that a question for another show? Because it throws science into disrepute. It throws our history. That oh, we how understand dare you, you offend science? How do you go against you what to you're re- told to believe? You have to rewrite all the, the textbooks and the history books, and that's a lot of that's, work. That's a lot of work, and it's very expensive. <laughs> Someone has to sit down and do that. So that's why it's, it's easier just to keep the status quo.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, that, yeah. And actually, no, joking aside, that's a really good point. It is easier to keep the status quo, especially in the science and religious fields. Less man hours involved. Yeah, that's true. We're going to take a quick break there. When we return, we're going to be talking about the legend of the Moon Eyed People. You're listening to your extension, don't go away. Now, speaking of civilizations that potentially have wiped themselves out or no longer exist, Lon has actually put together a great article about the legend of the Moon-Eyed People. And at first, I thought this was about gnomes, but it turns out it's not. This is quite fascinating. It says that the Moon-Eyed People are a race of small men who, according to the Cherokee legend, lived underground and only emerged at night. Unlike the Cherokee, the Moon-Eyed People are bearded and have pale white skin, The Cherokee knew the Moon-eyed people primarily from the many remains they left behind, the mounds and low stone walls that can be found throughout the southern Appalachians. The most famous is just over the North Carolina border in Georgia at Fort Mountain, which is now a state park. Now, Lon writes that the Cherokee legend attributes the walls to a mysterious band of Moon-eyed people led by a Welsh prince named Madoc, who appeared in the area more than 300 years before Columbus sailed to America. Now this is where we get into the whole idea of civilizations existing before and we were speaking about that the other day because we're saying well who was here before the native Australians and it's a saying it's been questioned many times before that America may have not originally
0: been discovered by Columbus that it was discovered by Vikings yeah or well, the or the Chinese or the Dutch you know, here in Australia I mean it's not necessarily going back to ancient civilizations it's just Simply, there probably were earlier explorers before Columbus and even the Vikings who had travelled further than we give them credit for.
1: Yeah, the thing is, though, that uh, Jared Ward, who was the manager of the archaeology lab at the University of Georgia, has actually said that there's no archaeological evidence to back up stories that either a Welsh prince or any other explorer came to the new world. Well, I know there's a few artifacts that have been found that would dispute that. But he's coming from a conventional science background.
0: There's been there's been runes found on certain artifacts within America that that show that there probably was a viking presence. In, in North America long before Columbus and who knows if there weren't other
1: civilizations there long before the Vikings yeah, so we, that, we're just not
0: going to know there was that Chinese map as well oh
1: yeah, it's
0: like everyone's been to America before
1: <laughs> Columbus <laughs> but it's the same like Australia. Australia as you said about the Dutch Australia was allegedly discovered by the Dutch first and then Captain Cook found it later but you know in our history books Captain Cook found Australia now, Lon says that the legend goes that a group arrived at Mobile Bay around 1170, made their way up the Alabama and Coosa Rivers and built stone fortifications at several spots near present-day Chattanooga in Tennessee. Dana Olsen, an author who has spent decades trying to prove this legend, says circumstantial evidence on both sides of the Atlantic is too compelling to ignore. She says I've travelled all over the country finding these forts. Some of them are pretty well known but I'm still uncovering some of them. These stone structures have long been a topic of debate. Many scientists have come to believe that the walls at Fort Mountain and other southeast sites were built by Native Americans between 200 BC and AD 600. However, supporters of the Maradoc legend say that the walls' tear-shaped design are similar to ruins found in Wales or elsewhere in Great Britain. And they also point to an 1810 letter from John Seaver, the first governor of Tennessee, who said that in 1782, he was told by an Indian chief that the walls were built by white people called the Welsh who lived in the region before the Cherokee. They were driven out with the promise that they would never return to Cherokee
0: lands. There's also evidence of a big battle between 1450 and 1660 at the Falls of Ohio, which Olsen said was the scene of this big battle between the Red Indians and the White Indians, which were, you know, you could have been known as as the Welsh. I think... With this story, though, what's happened is... Because this is about the Moon-Eyed people. And what you said at the start, this is about the uh, Moon-Eyed people who would live underground and only come out at night. And we know that there's uh, Native American legends of things that sound very similar to gnomes or dwarves. And, I, I, and that's I get, why I thought that this was the same thing. Well, I get the feeling that... This, this article has just mixed the two together or through history the two have become mixed together. So you might have two mysteries here. You might have that uh, that folklore of these little humanoids that live underground and come out at night and, you know, that, that gnomish dwarf well, legend. And that's crossing over with the possibility that the Welsh actually visited the Americas long before Columbus. Exactly, and I totally agree with you there because when I
1: was Googling this because I wanted to find out more about these moon-eyed people and the information was obviously the reason why they're called moon-eyed people is because they have such large, very, very large round eyes Right, and they were so sensitive to light that they only came out at night. Hence why they had such large eyes which allowed them to see in dim light which means you can right. see underground. And we know the Welsh have pale skin but it's not they that They don't bad. have large eyes. Yeah, They ex- can still ex- go out in the sun. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Oh, some of my closest friends are Welsh. You know, they've got no problem going out in the sun. They just get burnt after five minutes. Yeah, well, get you know, that happens. But the thing is, though, here is that uh, when I looked up for other information, there were some that said that there were these tall, red-bearded giants. Yeah. So, and then there's other tales that say that they're these small little creatures. And then there was also information that said that the Native Americans were absolutely terrified of them. And then there's other tales that say that they were fighting with
0: them. So well, I don't know. Yeah, there's great legends in, in Native American history of, of the red-bearded giants. And it's no surprise because since considering we just covered those South American legends of of this race of giants that supposedly constructed these these great uh, pyramids, of course, you would, you'd probably have those legends extend to North America as well. Exactly. Absolutely.
1: And it's interesting because they have been brought up in a number of different texts. And there was something that really grabbed me. It was that... The reason why the Moon-Eyed people is linked to this legend is that the folklore of the region where it's alleged the Moon-Eyed people are is almost non-existent. So when the Native Americans were scattered around into the northeast and the northwest and, right. and those areas, this particular region, and I, I can't recall which region it was, but they they didn't settle there. And the reason why uh. they didn't settle there is because it was where the descendants of this Welsh prince, Madoc, settled and then somehow the Moon-Eyed people came to be, and they inhabited these areas, and then the Native Americans at the time were terrified of them, so therefore they would not enter this
0: region. I think any reference to giants or gnomes is from such a distant time. Like, it's it's not even – I wouldn't even put it in this same cycle of civilization. Now,
1: there's a tale here of the Uts, and I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, but they were at war with these red-haired giants that had fair skin and lived in the West – The legend says that the Piyot were at war with these giants for generations, and that these red-haired giants declined to a point where they became dog-eaters. I don't know what that means. It says here next to it, an insult. The final battle came when they trapped these giants in a cave at the edge of the mountains. They set a huge fire that eventually killed what remained of the giants. And, of course, most of this legend was considered to be fanciful in order to give greater status to the tribe, until a cave was discovered on the edge of the Sierra Nevada in the 1920s. Uh, I don't know what was found inside that. It doesn't actually say. But it is interesting that it was a region that they owned and then the cave was described there. So, I mean, as you say, I mean, this could go back quite far.
0: Yeah, I, as I said earlier, I think this is multiple aspects of folklore melded together into this, this one story. You can read the full article there on the legend of the Moon-Eyed People at com Of course, the Phantoms and Monsters blog. And that brings us to an end for this episode of Mysterious Universe. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being PLUS members. Great stuff coming up on the weekend. Oh, I'm looking forward to the
1: weekend. The one story that absolutely, out of all the time I've been doing in Mysterious Universe, I couldn't sleep properly last night when I read it. Goosebumps, huh? Oh, yeah. It's that good.
0: Yeah, We've also got an article from Discovery Magazine talking about the Army's plan to turn soldiers into telepaths. That should propel us into an interesting discussion. Because there was an article as well of uh, the Swiss Army using a psychic to find... Some lost codes on a USB key. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, I think we'll briefly mention that one. Yeah, he ended up finding it because it was where he peed. He peed, yeah, and he dropped it. The psychic actually found that because she saw a vision of him peeing. Great story. (laughs) Great story. Don't forget to head to mysteriousuniverse.org. You'll find links to everything we've spoken about today. And, of course, keep an eye on our website for all the great new posts coming out from our writers. And we'll catch you guys on the weekend. Thanks for listening. (laughs)